Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. In his inaugural address, President Biden named a number of different crises that our country now faces, including the pandemic, growing inequality, racism, and climate change. In all of these issues, there is a tremendous polarization of feelings and ideas. The issues are often framed with an us versus them mentality. Amidst this multitude of crises and conflicting beliefs in politics, it is easy to get disillusioned and pessimistic about our country's ability to solve these very issues. That is why it is so timely and why we are very happy to have as our guest today, George Halverson. Over three decades, George Halverson has served as a CEO of many different healthcare companies, including Kaiser Permanente. He is now CEO of the Institute for Intergroup Understanding and the author of many books. George's most recent writings have focused on how opposing groups of humans interact with each other and how we as humans butt heads in many of those interactions. Most importantly for our times, however, George Halverson is a voice of optimism about how we can come together, break down that us versus them paradigm, and solve our society's shared problems. And that is why we are so pleased to have George Halverson on another episode of The Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. George, uh, very happy to have you on our show, and I'd like to dive right in and ask you a bit about your own uh, personal journey, uh, how you went from working and managing very large companies in a very specific industry, the healthcare industry, to kind of uh, stepping back and, and working more broadly on, on some of the huge issues that are, are challenges, not just for healthcare, but are challenges for our communities and, and really our world. So have you always been interested in these human relation issues or, or was there a specific point in time where you, you stepped back and decided to, to dive into this space? Well, I have been interested in that space for a very long time. I was actually um, working on both civil rights movement uh, types of things in the U.S. and working on various kinds of uh, intergroup and racial issues uh, back in the um, 70s and 80s, actually. Um, in uh, By 1987... Um, I had an opportunity that was uh, fascinating. The uh, I was running a health plan at the time that was fairly successful in improving the quality of care in a number of areas. And I had an opportunity to go to uh, Wales. And the Welsh uh, Health Board wanted to talk about what they could possibly do to take some of the care improvement enhancements that we had put in place in Minnesota and move them to Wales. And I thought, great idea. So I worked on some things, put together presentation. I went to Wales, got in front of the health board, and, um, and I had been really struck by the beauty of the countryside on my way there. 
and I got there and I said, I just want to open by saying that um, this is spectacularly beautiful. I had no idea that England was this beautiful. Hmm. And the guy interrupted me and said, you're not in England. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I just came from London <laughs> by train. And he said, no, you are not in England. You're in Wales. Uh, we don't like the English. The English oppress us. The English do bad things to us. And I said, well, the Prince of Wales, actually, isn't that the term for the successor to the English throne? And he said, that's a token thing. They, they give that to us as a sop. And actually, they, they don't like us. They um, treat us with some disdain and prejudice. And um, and he said, frankly, I'm I'm not sure that we want to uh, be talking to you further if you don't even know where you are or who you're with. Wow. And I thought, okay, uh, this is I'm not in a good place here. Uh, and, and I it, talked to him for a while. I did give my talk. Uh, very cold audience finished up, and there was no follow up. We did not have any other meetings after that conversation and as I left the room I, I said um, I always thought Great Britain was a happy friendly country everybody got along um, and they said well actually there are some people within Great Britain that aren't entirely happy about being in Great Britain and they said uh, why don't you talk to this gentleman from Scotland and ask him what he thinks so I talked to him and he said no we we hate the Brits too uh, they've oppressed us for years. If you go back into our history, our traitors, our people who sided with the Brits. And uh, But what was fascinating was I heard some of the same exact language in the same anger that I had already heard in the Twin Cities from the African-American community, where I had actually been doing some writing for the African-American newspapers and, and working on some issues. And the language was identical. The, the points were the same. Mm. And and I had thought America, I'd written that America had invented racism as one of the terrible things that we did. And then I heard the same language, the same anger, and the same behavior there. And then I thought, you know, maybe that's not something we invented. Um, maybe that's something that happens in intergroup settings. So I, I started looking for that, and I immediately found over 30 uh intergroup conflicts going on in the world, the Basque, um, Barcelona, a bunch of low-hanging fruit. Um, I went to Ireland and um, talked to people in Ireland and discovered that the Northern Ireland uh, separation was extremely tribal, very deep, very basic, in the same patterns of behavior there. So I came back to the States with a sense of there might be some patterns here that we could learn from uh, in the U.S. And maybe we can deal with some of our issues more effectively if we understand that this is a pattern of intergroup behavior as opposed to just being an American invention. And uh, so I started studying how, how did we get here? If we didn't get here from historical reasons – then what other factors do we have in our lives? And the obvious other factor is instincts. 
So we have history and we have hard wiring. So I, I said, what kinds of instincts do we have? And I started studying instincts, fell in love with that. And I started looking at territorial instincts, tribal instincts, hierarchical instincts, and all the basic behaviors. And I discovered that um, studying those instincts was extremely useful to me in running companies. Awesome. So the, I learned that we divide the world into us and them. And if somebody's an us, we're protective, supportive, nurturing, forgiving, understanding. If somebody is a them, we're territorial, antagonistic, we don't like them, we firebomb them, we enslave them, we do terrible, terrible things to them, feel absolutely no guilt. And that was one of the first things I discovered in that process was that people um, feel no guilt in doing something bad to a them, but do feel ethics about what they do to an us. Yeah. So people in every culture tend to tell the truth to us, but they feel no problems uh, saying something um, not true to them. So uh, I started looking. I actually have gone to uh, 41 countries uh, doing my research in this space. And I've gone to each of the countries and I have met Chile, uh, Mexico, China. China, I went to some of the rural ethnic areas where they um, had tribes that weren't from the uh, hand tribe, and they have a lot of anger there from those tribes about being oppressed. So what I saw was that the patterns are everywhere. I also discovered that when you understand that, then I studied what brings people together. You know, what brings people together is common identity, what brings people together is fear, what brings people together is a sense of a common enemy. If we have a common enemy in any setting, we come together because of that enemy. Um, group identity brings people together. And I ended up with a pyramid that I used back at Health Partners that Health Partners employees saw many times that basically had a danger at the bottom of the, the pyramid, mission vision at the top, um, team behavior in the middle, and, and one of the things I discovered in studying instinctive behavior is that people love to be on teams. We have very strong team instincts, hunting teams, gathering teams. But we love to be in a team setting. We love to have a team identity, and we will sacrifice uh, for our team. It, so we end up with um, those instincts at play all over the place. And what happens in many settings is – uh, they're not used in any organized way. So I started using them in organized ways. So I started creating teams at at health partners um, and later at, at Kaiser. At Kaiser Permanente, we had 80,000 employees on unit-based teams, mm -hmm. literally on teams that were the size of the unit, um, and they were based around the mission of the unit, and people loved being on those teams. Morale was higher, absenteeism was lower. Um, people like being on teams. And if you think of your co-worker as a team member, uh, you've got a different attitude than if you think of your co-worker as being somebody from another group who's just sort of imposed on your setting. And at KP, we had to teach the uh, supervisors to be team leaders. So we built some training materials to do that. Um, 
So the the whole team thing. So at Kaiser, when I got there, we were about forty percent minority. When I left, we were fifty nine percent minority in our staff. We had two hundred thousand employees, and they were fifty nine percent minority. Huh. And we had eight regional presidents, and uh, only two of the eight regional presidents were white males. Huh. So we promoted people um, based on their ability and their talent in their performance and not on their race or gender and created a meritocracy. And so and that brought, that was really good for morale. It was really good for teamwork. It was amazingly good for recruiting because if you're trying to recruit in any given group, if other people in your that group are already there and they're saying they're being treated well, um, you end up in a, a easier recruiting situation. Right. So KP, we ended up. Um, so how did that group do? We were when before we were focusing on being an us and mission driven us. Kaiser performed about the middle on most quality performance satisfaction levels. If you go back and look at the old scores, the old Vita scores, the old uh, service scores, the KP was in the middle, um, middle on consumer reports. After a couple, three years of, of doing teams and being in us, we were number one in everything. We were number one J.D. Powers, number one consumer reports. Uh, there's an excellence that happens if you create a meritocracy and focus on teams. Hmm. So I, uh, I've been on this trap for a long time, and I have a sense that the community needs to have a sense of this information. And also, one of the things that uh, we need to do is have settings, have a sense of being an us. Because if you are an us, you do accept, forgive, support the other people around you. And if you perceive that the people around you are them, you can firebomb them, you can do. And we just had a bunch of people um, in Washington, D.C., storming the Capitol uh, who were clearly feeling like an us-them energy level was happening there. And people on each side, one of, the, one of the things leaders can do in any setting is you can cause your people to be divided and support you because of the division, or you can bring people together. Um, and clearly in that setting, there are at least some people dividing intentionally and creating a negative energy. Uh, right. But the, so that I, I don't think of what I'm doing now. So the institute that I created is the Institute for Intergroup understanding, which is intergroup is key word, understanding is key word. We focus on instinctive behavior at the intergroup level. So we, we try to get people to, to get together to, to work on, and we use the danger, common enemy, team behavior, um, common identity, collective gain, mission vision as um, motivating forces for the uh, institute and for every setting that we have a chance to help with. So we have helped some organizations. I've actually helped a few trade organizations. When when I was chair of AHIP, we actually used the pyramid of danger, common enemy, team behaviors um, very uh, directly um, and explicitly to help that organization come together um, 
because when the board members of that organization meet and they believe that there's a common enemy, then they're likely to be friends. But if they meet and they don't think that there's a threat and there isn't a common enemy and there is no danger, then all of the normal divisions that people bring to the table come to the table. Right. And so um, I've been using this for for a long time. Um, and I, I think in terms of systems, I'm a systems thinker and compulsively systematic. And, and so each of the health plans have run now, a couple of hospital systems, uh, a couple of health plans that have caregivers embedded in what I've done there in terms of systems is put systems in place everywhere. So Kaiser Permanente invested $4 billion in electronic systems to systematize every single thing. There is no paper at Kaiser yeah. Permanente. Um, it's all in an interconnected system that was intentional and, and deliberate. And it also gives the people then who are on that staff and on that team a chance to work together in collaborative ways um, using that data. So the, I, I think in terms of, of systems for, um, and I love electronic medical records. So we started doing that in when I ran senior health plan back in Minnesota before running health partners. Um, I actually you know, worked with the geriatricians at Regents Hospital to put together an electronic medical record for those senior patients and loved it. It was so much easier to take care of older patients when you had all of the information about them when they came in for a visit. So we, when I got to Group Health and, and we had 20 clinics, a couple dozen clinics that we owned, uh, we went down that path. We actually moved a variation of that uh, Regions Hospital um, geriatric system over to become the system for the entire company. And we pioneered with the patient profile system um, as the PPS system there. And then after we ran that for a couple of years and, and it was uh, a good system, uh, Epic came along. Yeah. And Epic, um, Judy Faulkner started down a similar path and uh, she put together a very, very good system. And some of our people who liked our system saw Judy's system in operation in Madison and came back and said, um, we like our system, but Judy's system has a couple additional things in it. Um, should we look at that as a possible option? So I let our, the people who wanted to do that pilot that in one northern clinic. Um, and then uh, we gave it a trial run, and it turned out that the system Judy built was better than the system that I had built. Um, which was a very painful. <laughs> <laughs> the, the patient, I love the patient profile system, PPS. It's just as a warm glow, but it was clearly Judy built a better system. Yeah. Epic yeah. had more, more functions, more features, and was more accessible to the doctors. Um, didn't have more medical information, but it had as basically as much. So we changed, and so uh, we rolled over there. But again, we did the same thing back to uh, creating team behavior. 
we sat down, we had the caregivers go through a selection process and figure out um, both which system to use and then which features of that system to put in place. Right. So, so does that so, make sense? Yeah, I think so. And 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 correct me if I'm I'm getting this wrong, but um, you're saying you think in terms of systems and your 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 first voyage maybe was um, thinking in terms of human systems, organizational systems. Yes, and absolutely. Them, right. And and you're not just drawing an analogy to IT systems, but you're saying they're the same systems. You the same way you look at an IT system and figure out what its utilization is and and how to apply it and which 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 you know user friendly and everything else. You can also look at organizational systems and 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 fix them with certain levers and certain certain ways of thinking. I mean it, it sounds yeah. almost mechanical yeah. a way of approaching or engineering yeah. maybe way of approaching human organizations. Yeah, I, I keep stepping back a level, but when you when you look at the universe, yeah, uh, we <laughs> have physics as one system, as one set of systems. We have mathematics as another set of systems, and we have DNA as another set of systems. DNA is actually a system. It's programmed. It's got all of the ingredients of, of programming. There are systems and subsystems. And DNA is programmed to do to preserve life and keep life going, and um, ep- both genetics and epigenetics that flow out of that are all system things. If, if you, I, I believe that the future, major part of the future of healthcare is going to be epigenetic, and because we now know that um, there are layers and layers of learning embedded in. Uh, DNA and flexibility in DNA that allow us to go forward and uh, both change lives and uh, change environments by um, manipulating the exposure that that DNA gets to the world in a way that causes it to be what it is. So epigenetics is stunningly important. And uh, one of the things... Define that term. At Kaiser, we, we looked at adverse childhood experiences. Um, the ACEs, you've heard of the, the ACEs research. No, no. But the, the ACEs no, research, no. adverse childhood experiences, if people have adverse experiences in their childhood, it changes their epigenetic structure. And people who have had, there's a 12 of them, uh, people who have had four or more are four times as likely to have a stroke hmm. than people who have one or less. Now, that's clearly something that's in the wiring. And stress in those highly vulnerable times to those people made them three times more likely to have cancer, twice as likely to have a stroke, whatever, like five times more likely to be uh, clinically depressed. And it's and the beauty of that research is it was done at Kaiser Permanente, and it was the same doctors, the same treatments, the same setting. Everything was the same. The only thing that was the same for the difference for those patients was the number of ACEs, the number of adverse childhood experiences. And they were still four times more likely to have a stroke as an adult if they had four or more ACEs. Now, when you look at that, you, you think, okay, that is a system learning for us. There's a systemness to that because you can measure it, you can count it, you can observe it. And, and to my point, you can also manage it. So once you get to the point of understanding the epigenetic opportunities, you can manage them 
I'll, I'll give you another quick epigenetic thing, a, a huge impact. We have more people in prison in this country than any planet on the, any country on the planet, way more. Mm -hmm. And we overwhelmingly imprison our minority uh, people in, um, when you, if you are an African-American male in this country and you have dropped out of high school and you're in your 30s, 60% are in jail today, 60%. 80% will be in jail their lifetime. So that's a horrible number. What's really, really, really fascinating and, and also horrifying about that number is we can predict with 80% accuracy by age three which path all of those people are going down because we now know on the epigenetic wiring that the first three years of life are when the neurons connect in every child from every group. And the children who get a lot of exposure in those first three years that build the neurons have strong neurons for life. And the ones that don't get that exposure in that time frame end up with no ability to build it later because the brain actually changes at four. And at four, the brain purges itself of unused neurons. And so at four, you've got a totally different brain. At five, you can't catch up, which is why all the pre-kindergarten programs all over America to close learning gaps in schools have failed. Really well-meaning programs, a lot of investments, they've all failed. And when I say that, you can measure it everywhere. No doubt, no threat that someone's going to come up with a number and show me that's not true. So they've all failed. And the reason they failed is because you cannot change that trajectory after age five, after age four. You have to, you can't do it at 15 years, you've got to do it at 15 months. So to so manage it, you've got to go it's back to that first three or four years, that's what you're saying. Yes, right? we have to go back to those first years and, and we have to help every single kid in those years. Back to my epigenetics, so what do you do when you, when you take a systems look at this, you've got to go back and help those kids. So so let's, let's <laughs> use your idea of systems, especially the, the intergroup systems, um, and, and talk about this, the past nine months uh, in, in this country, but also the world, where I, you had a number of things um, that went very well. Like we had a common enemy. You saw amazing examples of heroism and, and, and charitableness and supporting for our, our fellow human beings. On the same yep. token, um, as you yourself have quoted, right, there's, there's dozens of uh, wars out there, actual armed conflicts still going on throughout the world. Um, Over 200 political conflicts in this country, um, racial inequality. So talk to me a little bit about the pandemic and, and how your framework uh, seized this past nine months. Well, a pandemic, we as a country have done a terrible job of uh, responding to the pandemic. <clears throat> but what we need to know, and this goes back to systems, we know that DNA, back to my DNA uh, is the core DNA mutates, that there are viruses out there that are potential threats to human beings. And we know that some of them will mutate and evolve or won't have to mutate, but will become exposed to humans. The, the Chinese thing, it looks like the, uh, the bats were somehow in that setting exposed to humans and the humans got it and then it spread. But once that spreads, once it gets into the human population, then we have to deal with this systematically. We have to go uh, starters. We need to um, have an immediate, immediate response. We have to 
fear it and we have to close it off and, and we have to do whatever we need to do to shut it down to keep it from getting out of that space. And then we need to do uh, engineering as quickly as we possibly can on better masks, better outcomes, better isolation, whatever it takes. And we need, again, to have a systematic approach uh, to that. And you're, you're a systems group. I mean, the, the systematic approach to that is needed for this one and it's needed for the next one. And we, we should really be ashamed of ourselves if we do not do a really conscious competent systematic response to the next version of threat we get down that pathway. Right. And interestingly, because we are finally appreciating that DNA is a code and RNA is a code, the vaccines that we're using for that are re-engineered RNA. They're magnificent. They are really cool things because what they're doing is they're identifying by engineering the vaccine, how they can create a simulation of a response that gives our body protective responses. And that's genius at several levels. And it's not the old model we had of having to give somebody the disease and let them build their own antibodies. We're actually creating barriers that are the functional equivalent of that trigger. Um, and that is genius. But again, we couldn't do that the systems world made that possible. Right. The, the people that, that you are part of in the systems world made that possible because they figured out what that coding is for that and, and what that needs to be. And if you look at that research, that there's some really um, lovely stuff going on there. But back to the next disease. So we need to be, next time this happens, we have to have wherever it comes from, uh, turn uh, report it immediately. We have to have screening processes and, and we can use artificial intelligence going down different pathways to screen from various databases to look for early triggers in that space. Mm. Mm. We easily can do that. We can we yeah. can figure that now. Right now, in the U.S., there are companies using artificial intelligence to identify what the infection rate is going to be in uh, cities based on all kinds of other data they're scanning out of the databases of, of communities that aren't about the disease directly. So we can figure out the indirect um, path of, of uh, early detection and then we need to do really well-organized early detection because we should never, ever, ever have to go through anything as ugly as this again. And right. if we manage it systematically, we won't. won't. And, and, and what do you think about what do you think about human organizations as they've gone through this pandemic? So, uh, you know, many people, except for essential workers and people doing the food service, you know, everybody was sent home. They're all working remotely. Um, our kids, many of our children are, are working. They're not mixing with their with their peers. Um, does that idea of, of teamwork, does the intergroup interaction, um, does that fall apart? Do we get more? No, um, what we're learning, really okay. good, well, we're learning a, a couple of things. We are learning that we were not systematic at all in care delivery. And people, we've been saying that for years, some of us who have been pushing for various levels of integration and connectivity have been saying that for years, but most people didn't have a sense of it. But what they've realized is their, their primary care doctor isn't connected to anybody right now uh, in many settings, and the specialist isn't connected to anybody. And, and so what we've 
what we have discovered and uncovered is that that uh, lack of connection exists. And we have flipped over into doing really good electronic connectivity with caregivers. So e-visits now, uh, would, the day I retired from Kaiser, we were at 40% e-visits. Uh, the day the virus hit, we were 60%. Kaiser was 60%. Kaiser's now 80% e-visits. And the patients and doctors both prefer it. Uh, the rest of the world is heading down the, the, the path to visits. And, and we're doing that in the context where we have FIRE, which is a magnificent toolkit. And the, the FIRE programming is able to uh, bring electronic medical record information together. And then at the slightly more macro level, we're bringing that all together in a world where black lives matter and the Me Too movement have made us much, much, much more enlightened in a couple of really important areas about a whole series of interactions. So we've we've got both the Me Too movement and, and Black Lives Matter are, are getting people to think in different and more enlightened ways about what our interactions should be. And then as we're going forward, putting systems in place, I think we're more likely, which is why I'm kind of an optimist on where we're going to go with uh, computer support for healthcare, and I'm also kind of an optimist on where we're going to go with cultural support and enlightenment for our society. Because I think we've got a good chance of coming out at the end of the road on this thing, being better on gender issues and being better on racial issues and uh, feeling good about being there. Because one of the other interesting things in any setting is when you change a culture and the people internalize the culture, they, they like the change, they often resist the change don't want change to happen, but once change happens, we're wired to accept our change, deal with our change, like our change. And, and so I think as we go forward on those paths, we're likely to be more enlightened in the things that we embed as interactions are going to be better. That, that, that is just a great, <laughs> that is a terrific message, especially in these times we're, we're living in. Certainly um, the conversations um, that we're having with our neighbors and our family, um, all of these issues come up, but it does feel like we're in a dark space uh, because yes. we're really the curtain's being pulled back on the inequality, on the economic and racial inequality, and and on so many things. Uh, it feels like it's a very ugly world. But you're 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 saying that actually we're learning a lot and and we're seeing change uh, even amidst what looks like surrounding by ugliness. Is that what oh I mean? absolutely? And and I, I believe now that we are seeing some of the racial differences. And people are caring about other people and saying, okay, that's not good. I mean, people really did not believe before the Black Lives Matter, uh, African-Americans knew um, what some of those issues were, but the rest of the country, and I've written about this for years, the uh, rest of the country uh, didn't believe that that was a real set of threats. And, and now the... Everybody knows that it is. What that it's going to do is it's going to give us a chance to hit, set up new rules. The new normal, I think, is not going to allow some of those things. I think chokeholds are out. I mean, and and the Me Too movement was hugely, hugely successful because women for years and years and years have put up with all kinds of negative, prejudicial, discriminatory behavior that was invisible. And all of a sudden, Me Too 
made it visible and made it okay and made women feel good about saying me too. And that was, that was actually a really hugely, I've written about this for years. I've got in chapters in my books about gender discrimination, some of the terrible things that I've done. And, um, and I've done a number of things to, to training programs for uh, women. Wall Street Journal one time had me speak at their national gender thing about what a new woman CEO should do when she goes into a company to uh, create a sense of being alpha because companies need to have a sense that somebody's alpha and some of the things that women do are, are more collaborative and cooperative. And, and what I teach in that program is if you establish yourself as absolutely alpha, then after that you can be collaborative. And after that, you can be uh, – but if you start with that, people think the position hasn't been filled and there's no not a boss yet. But if you do the right things, then there's a sense of being a boss. Then everybody's okay with the queen. They just weren't okay with um, not having the position filled. So anyway, but that's an instinctive behavior. But those were not visible at all. And what we're seeing now, I think, with Me Too is – um, people are feeling really comfortable flaming, saying that's a um, unacceptable set of interactions. And we've got some learning to do to get to the other end of that, but I think we're going to learn. And we're all <laughs> going to feel better. The other thing I know is that morale goes up. Morale goes up. People feel better about being in a setting where people are treating each other with respect and positive interactions. And, and so that's just really important to have that context. And as we build it as a country, as a context, I'm optimistic that we're going to do better in both of those paths. And I think we're going to do better in the system paths. And I also think we're going to do better on healthcare because now that we're going, I think we're going to end up mandating team care. And I hope the next uh, iteration of Obamacare under President Biden is um, embeds in it some of the team care uh, requirements as part of what they build. But if they embed team care in Obamacare, there's a good chance, really good chance that the care is going to get better too. Mm. Hmm. Very, very good uh, discussion. Uh, and George, and maybe we'll come to bring it to a close, but before we go, um, what kind of resources uh, might you send some of the listeners to, to, to that they can find out more information about what you've talked about um, even, and tell us about a few well, of your books that might be good resources. Actually, I have, a, I have an institute. The institute has a website. It's the Institute for Intergroup Understanding. So if you go to the Institute for Intergroup Understanding website, uh, there's six books there about these behaviors. They're all available free. Um, free electronically. If you want to order from Amazon, you pay 10 bucks a book. But you can get Primal Pathways, uh, Cusp of Chaos, uh, Intergroup, a uh, couple of uh, three key years, books are all available there. And if you go to the website, there's also thought pieces and some other stuff. Uh, just simply go to threekeyyears.org. Threekeyyears.org. Three and you get the brain science for new kids, and it's set up in a way that a new parent can teach it to their kids. So threekeyyears.org, if you did that, uh, those learning gaps I talked about could be wiped out if you just shared that with people. So the Institute is uh, where you can go to get some of the stuff.
Terrific. Thank you, George. It's been a, a pleasure and certainly uh, a very timely conversation. And, and um, uh, I love your optimism and uh, I'm, I'm full of hope that we can get there. So appreciate you spending some time with us today. Delighted. Thank very you. Good. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. This has been a, a discussion with George Halverson, author and CEO for the Institute for Intergroup Understanding. If you've enjoyed this discussion, please join Weedy at our Health Equity Virtual Event. That's next month, February 24th. And George Halverson will be our keynote speaker for that event. So we hope to see you in February. This has been the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you, George, and be safe. Be safe.